80% of the legislation that passes in the state of Indiana is based on emotion, not on fact or evidence. We're not doctors, we're politicians. It's really? I don't think we should go I for the lowest comment. Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content following this week's edition of In Focus. Exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Spieler. We begin with the big news in Washington this weekend. Special counsel Robert Mueller has concluded his investigation into Russian election interference and delivered his final report to Attorney General William Barr. The report is still confidential. The next steps are up to the Attorney General and to Congress. It's not clear how much of the report will become public or be provided to Congress or when that might happen. We'll stay on top of this developing story. We'll bring you the latest as soon as we hear it. Dan? More questions this week about Attorney General Curtis Hill's future after a disciplinary complaint that now goes to the state Supreme Court. So what could happen next? Our Jill Glavin has more. This is the complaint filed with the Indiana Supreme Court on Tuesday. In it, the court's disciplinary commission says Attorney General Curtis Hill's acts, if proved, would warrant disciplinary action. It lays out the accusations of four women who came forward publicly last year, saying Hill touched them inappropriately at a party celebrating the end of the legislative session. Hill's ethical violations and offensive conduct reflect poorly on the legal profession and does incalculable harm to the public perception of the Attorney General's office and all the state agencies it represents, the complaint says. It also claims Hill engaged in a pattern of misconduct, denied responsibility for his action, and lacks remorse for his misconduct. Hill's conduct caused actual or potential injury to his victims and their future careers by forcing them to choose between reporting his conduct or remaining silent. It continues. Can you respond to some of the controversy over how your office has handled the situation? Hill has said little publicly about the case. In a news conference, he denied the allegations, saying he had been wrongfully accused. I never dreamed this could happen to me. And yet, here I stand. I stand before you a condemned man. State Republican leaders said little about this latest development. Governor Eric Holcomb and others have called on Hill to resign, but resisted calls by Democrats for impeachment. In a statement, the four women, including State Representative Mara Candelaria Reardon, said, The filing today was not in response to any action we took, as we did not file a grievance with the Indiana Disciplinary Commission. We spoke to Reardon Tuesday. I've got uh, a lot of support from my colleagues and people and people in the State House that, that have been very supportive. As Jill Glavin reporting, this week we also spoke with the Indy Star reporter who broke the story to talk about the potential implications and with the three legislative staffers who are also among Hill's accusers. The complaint just filed by the state Supreme Court's disciplinary commission could have big implications for the attorney general's future. And while the four women accusing him of groping them last year can't say much about this latest filing, they are pleased to see the issue being taken seriously. There still isn't anything that exists that would address a situation exactly like the one we're in. I do understand the sensitivity of, of taking on something of this stature um, all in one legislative session, but I think we have to also be sure that it's not just going to be brushed under the rug and we'll continue to move 
move in the right direction. So what could happen next? It all depends on the state Supreme Court and what kind of ruling they make. One of the reporters who broke the story says the consequences could potentially be significant. Curtis Hill could be disciplined by the Supreme Court if they choose to do so, which means he could be uh, punished in any sort of ways, including potentially losing his law license. Well, you have to have a law license to be attorney general, uh, meaning he could no longer serve and he might have to be replaced by Governor Eric Holcomb himself. I stand before you a condemned man. Hill has denied the allegations and says he has no plans of stepping down. It's kind of a waiting game for now. Curtis Hill will have time to respond and sort of defend himself. So until then, we kind of just wait and see. And we will have much more coming up later as the panel sits down with our Bob Donaldson to discuss the potential impact. Also talking about the latest news from Washington with Congress back home on break. We sat down with several members of Congress from Indiana to discuss some of this week's top stories. We sent him on the way, but I wasn't a fan of John McCain. The president saying, uh, quote, I was never a fan and never will be. What, what was your reaction to that? Well, it's, it's disappointing. I, I am a fan of, of, of John McCain, the, the, the storied uh, a veteran, the deep, uh, incredible sacrifice that he made uh, for our country, the, the, the public service that he provided to our country for decades in both the House and the Senate. And I, I served with his son in Afghanistan. I recently traveled with, with Cindy McCain to, Munich, to the Munich Security Conference. Um, the, these are good people. He's, he's, he was a great uh, public servant for our country. Um, the, the, the tweets about uh, Senator McCain are, are um, unbecoming of a, of a president, and I would, I would hope that the president would move on and focus on the issues that matter. He criticized John McCain, most recently even commenting, saying he's not a fan of John McCain. Is this something that helps America, something that helps the presidency? You know, when I ran, uh, you know, I did it because there was a disruptor there. And uh, with any individual comes a certain style. And uh, of course, mine would be almost completely different from that. But I give a lot of leeway uh, to that kind of stuff because I'm mostly interested in the agenda. You know, I look at tax reform. I look at this economy that's as hot as it's ever been. Uh, I look at the fact that we're finally doing something on the border, kind of the policy stuff. And I've got a high tolerance level for any of that kind of stuff. Um, I think for President Trump, uh, he would probably be a little better off so that you could focus in on the stuff that's really been good if he made if he did a little less of that. Been a lot of talk this week about President Trump and some of the comments that that he has made and because you've been pretty vocal on this topic I wanted to ask you about his remarks in the wake of the New Zealand shooting. He was asked if he thought white supremacism was on the rise and he said uh, not necessarily. What was your reaction to that statement from the president? It was unfortunate. I mean, white supremacy has been on the rise for decades, and I felt like the president had an opportunity to really speak to this issue directly, and the toxic environment that has been created as a result of this white supremacist narrative that is growing each and every day. Do you see a problem? Do you see a trend with white supremacy, and do you see it impacting the safety of people not just here but around the world because of what people are saying is happening? Well, when it comes to white su supremacy or nationalism, I don't know that I see a trend, but I don't like it. Uh, connecting that to President Trump 
on a particular incident like that, I think is uh, not only bad logic, it just doesn't make sense. So a lot of that would be, especially for those of us, again, that think the system needed to be disrupted. And it goes back to Trump's style where he'll say stuff maybe where, you know, he shouldn't have. Uh, you know, trying to connect him to any of that to me is crazy talk. And I, uh, on the other hand, think that whenever you have anything like white uh, nationalism, white supremacy, terrorism in general, we should all be universally against that and try to tamp it down or eliminate it. Do you think the president's been forceful enough in, in saying white, white nationalism is racism, white nationalism is bad for America? Has he denounced it strongly enough? I, if, if it were me, I would denounce it more strongly. I want to talk about what you're hearing from Hoosiers uh, about some of the issues in the news. Obviously, there's the, the national emergency declaration and the president's veto, all of the investigations encircling the president. Are these topics you hear about from Hoosiers, or are they focused elsewhere? Well, my, my constituents have made it clear that the, these issues have overshadowed the issues that really matter. I mean, the, the, folk, the almost exclusive focus in Washington, D.C., on the Mueller investigation, on the Trump uh, tweets of the day uh, are to the detriment of solving problems like driving down the cost of health care, uh, like passing balanced budgets, uh, like getting uh, Congress working again. And, and that, that's often what I hear from my constituents. I have a couple of town hall meetings uh, this week, and, and that, those are the types of questions that I'm receiving from my constituents about how to, how to solve problems, not about uh, investigations and, and some of those Does the president himself needs to, need to focus more on, on some of those issues in your mind? Uh, we, we all do. I mean, the, the Congress itself as an institution has been sort of, especially in the House of Representatives under the new uh, Democrat majority, is almost exclusively focused on investigations, not just the Mueller investigation, but the subpoenas, the, the House oversight. And, and by the way, I, I believe uh, in House oversight. That's a key component of what we do. but to the degree that we're seeing it in this majority, I think is a distraction from the issues that matter. Um, do you believe we're about to hear from the special counsel? And what do you think that report might entail? It's very difficult to say, Dan. You know, we've, we've, we've seen extensions uh, be, be, be issued as it relates to Director Mueller. He's an accomplished investigator. And so we're still doing our work on the Intelligence Committee. You still have the Southern District and what they're doing. And the hope is that uh, we could stay in line with what the framers envisioned and have separate but equal branches of government working to act as a check and balance against the administration. All right, we have more of those interviews on our website, including what Representative Banks told me about his political future. Just click on In Focus. A lot of headlines this week from the State House and from the campaign trail. Here's Bob Donaldson with more. Dan, thanks so much. Coming up. We'll talk with our panel about the Attorney General. What are the implications of this latest disciplinary complaint? Could the Supreme Court really take away Curtis Hill's license to practice law? And we'll talk about the hate crime debate with supporters once again descending on the State House this week. Okay, let's bring in our panel now. We welcome them. Former Communications Director for the Indiana Senate Democrats, Elise Schrock. Two former state uh, lawmakers, Republican Mike Murphy, Democrat Christina Hale, and conservative radio host Abdul Hakeem Shabazz. Let's go start with the biggest news of the day statewide. That would be 
Curtis Hill. Abdul, uh, many people were wondering about the timing of all this. Why, why did this come up now with the disciplinary commission? Uh, well, a couple of things. I can kind of speak to this as somebody who has two law licenses, one in Indiana and one in Illinois. These are also very, very serious things. There was an investigation, uh, a complaint had been filed a while back uh, against the attorney general regarding the allegations uh, made against him. Uh, the disciplinary commission had been doing an investigation for quite a while, and now they've come back with their, with their, with their assessment is believing you know, that the attorney general should be held accountable for uh, these alleged actions. The attorney general, they filed their response. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, just this past weekend told the disciplinary commission, okay, we want more details, more information, and then they'll make a recommendation which can go anywhere from uh, not saying you're exonerated to a slap on the wrist, a temporary license suspension, or a complete revocation. How much of a danger, Mike, does this pose to the Attorney General? Oh, I think he's in deep doo-doo, quite frankly. Uh, the, the Disciplinary Commission, first of all, I want to say I'm not an attorney, but I've watched the Disciplinary Commission over the years, and they don't do these things likely. They don't do things for political reasons. They have serious concerns and serious allegations they've made. So, to get to Abdul's point, my deep suspicion is that what they end up doing is suspending him for 30 days, and that knocks him out of the Attorney General's office, which is really what the administration's goal is. Christina? I think it's important to note this is not a criminal investigation. This is not a civil matter. This is about disciplinary action. It's similar to if you had a doctor that faced some kind of issue as well. And that's exactly what might happen. He might lose his law license, and that just opens up for a number of pieces on the chessboard to move. Elise, I want to get your thoughts in just a moment. Sure. But first, meantime, this statement from Hill's lawyers, the attorney general remains focused on serving the people of Indiana. This matter will be addressed through the proper process outlined for disciplinary complaints in the state of Indiana. We are confident that it will conclude in a manner consistent with the results of prior investigations. They're basically saying that we've been over this ground before and that nothing really has changed. You agree? I don't think so. I think this body especially is the one that is responsible for revoking his law license, which would make him ineligible to be our attorney general. Um, you know, at, at the beginning of the uh, session, there was speak of impeachment. Uh, Speaker Brian Bosma thought it would be too much of a distraction, and I would argue, and did argue then, that it's going to be even more of a distraction when we're put in a constitutional quandary when we have an attorney general who's um, ineligible to serve in his role. Abdul, is it too big of a, a leap to say that he could lose his law license over something like this? It, it is not too big a leap because you never know necessarily what the Supreme Court is going to come back with. I think where it gets weird, and I think it's a little, still a little unclear, it's one thing if it's just a reprimand, it's another thing if it's a clear revocation. If it's a suspension of his law license, then the, the question is, well, can you still serve as Attorney General? Because to, everybody's still looking at the case law right now to see what exactly is possible. And the Attorney General's office is different because you must be licensed to practice law to hold that position. I frankly think if you go back and read the, you know, the Disciplinary Commission's complaint, I think the Attorney General's office, the Attorney General does have a point where they say that this has been looked at by a special prosecutor, has been looked at by the, the Inspector General, and also even investigated to a certain point by the Speaker's own people, and people may not like the result, but the, the, the guy's still in office. The problem is you cannot get a straight story out of Curtis Hill or his spokespeople or his attorney. He claims that the legislature investigated and found no wrongdoing. The legislative investigation was to see if the legislature had legal liability, not to see if Curtis Hill had committed any crimes or done anything that should have him impeached. And I would also argue that this is 
uncommon for this to become public. I'm not saying that this stuff doesn't happen. So the reporting process is not clear enough. And we need better reporting processes in the state legislature for if something and when something like this happens again. Christina? I completely agree. There's a great deal of this where the law is just silent and it leads so many questions unanswered and a lot of confusion. We need an attorney general. We have one of the biggest opioid outbreaks. We have a number of matters that are truly important and urgent, and we just don't have time for this kind of confusion and nonsense. But, but, nobody, but nobody could point to any case that the Attorney General's office has lost because of these allegations against the Attorney General, because one of the things is how effective can you be Know, with this job, and they've had, no one can point to me one case that they lost because of this. Maybe not, but imagine being a woman, you know, serving and needing to, um, if you have an issue, sexual harassment, um, assault, we don't want our chief law enforcement uh, statewide elected to be somebody that we can't trust. Or, or serving on a civil jury and having to make a decision based on the Attorney General's representation. Or the women that I very much believe that already have to go to work every single day at the State House with him. One thing we know for sure is that this issue is not going to be going away sure. anytime soon and we'll continue to follow it. Also at the State House this week, religious leaders gathered to make the case for a hate crimes bill citing what they call a troubling trend of incidents involving white nationalism like last week's tragic shootings at the two mosques in New Zealand and certainly a conversation that is relevant this week at the state and the local level as well as the international level. The question, I guess, Elise, is are we going to be able to get a hate crimes bill passed in this session? You know, time is ticking. We are winding down and, right. you know, we've heard from three-fourths of Hoosiers that say they want a hate crimes law. We've heard from just yesterday, so and as you saw in the B-roll, so many people of faith that are saying we absolutely need a hate crimes law. We are hearing from LGBT, the LGBT senator. We've heard from the Black Caucus saying that they want this. Um, but when it comes to uh, my faith and what the speaker said the last couple of days, I don't know that it's going to happen and that will be a shame. Mike, is this going to come down to the last minute? If, it, if it's passed oh, sure. all. most important issues do but it's, what seems to have happened is we've gone now from hate crimes to hate driver's licenses right and if you go try to get on an airplane in the United States you have to designate whether you're a male or a female when you buy your plane ticket so this may have implications for for federal process too and TSA and all that as well the speaker's power really lies for in being able to kill a bill so a bill can be assigned to committee to die very easily, quietly, and I wonder if that's not what's happening here. But I mean, wouldn't it have happened already by now if that was going to happen, or is it well, part of the process? Well, there's a lot of political pressure, too. I mean, the governor has been asking for this law. There's a lot of conversation with what happened, as Mike pointed out, with right. the BMV. You know, it, it's, it's high politics. But the thing to keep in mind is Indiana technically already has a law. The question is, do we have a list? Because when, when people are sentenced for certain offenses, the judges can take certain factors into account, right. such as race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation. It is just not an enumerated list. What we're not arguing over is a hate crimes law. What we are arguing over is a hate crimes list. And by the way, there are already two lists already in the statute, one of the Civil Rights Code and one that calls for reporting to the FBI. So the lists are already there. Yeah. Supporters all would always go back and say it's a RIFRA type of a situation where the state is really going to have difficult attracting, uh, difficulty attracting talent if something isn't done in this session. Yeah, 
we've already heard from business leaders that say they want the list and they want to get off the list of not having the list. It's been very clear um, what it's going to take for people to invest in our state to have full faith that you'd be protected if you moved your employees here. So, you know, we can argue um, semantics, I guess, but we've already heard from our, our business community on what they're wanting to see out of but, this. But we shouldn't do public policy because we're on a list or not on a list. That's ridiculous. It's yeah, it would illogical. be right to just pass it. It's illogical. You want to <laughs> do what's list. right. We're also one of the few states that's on a short list of states with a surplus. So do we give away our money so we get off that list of short states with a surplus? It's, it's, it's illogical to make that argument. Well, that was an illogical argument. But I was trying to <laughs> was trying to show you how logical things are. There's quite a bit of metaphor fail. The, the supporters who say it's it's the principle of the thing here is is that is that true? Uh, it, that's one piece of it, yes. But I think if you lived in a neighborhood where somebody lit a cross in your yard or spray painted a swastika on your garage, it might also feel very very personal. Um, it's something that so many people from not just the business community, which was a great point that Elise made, but um, our communities of faith um, feel that is really necessary. All right, we'll leave it there right now. Up next, talking about the possibility of legalized sports gambling and how the governor jokingly addressed that topic this week while filling out his tournament bracket. Don't go away. This is just for recreational purposes only because sports gambling is not legal in the state of Indiana <laughs> yet at the time of this recording. That's Governor Eric Holcomb with WIBC filling out his tournament bracket. And yes, you heard him say not legal yet. This past week, another hearing in the House chamber as the Public Policy Committee heard testimony on possibly legalizing sports gambling in Indiana. We'll keep you posted on what happens next. All right, time now for this week's winners and losers. Abdul, we'll start with you. The knuckleheads who made the teachers participate in the active shooting and shot them actually hit them literally with pellets uh, from paintballs. That was ridiculous, totally unnecessary, totally uncalled for. That was a head scratcher. Mm -hmm. Christina. Theresa May, Brexit. It seems like uh, Brexit's imploding and uh, so much more trouble to come. Boy, if anybody can explain that one, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll be in line for that. Mike. Well, this week is actually Donald Trump for signing the executive order enforcing the protection of the First Amendment on college campuses, and the loser has to be Curtis Hill for continuing to step in it. Elise? I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm with Abdul. He stole mine. Uh, truly, the teachers that were put through that unfortunate experience, and anyone that thinks that, any policymaker that thinks that that's the way we handle school violence, um, that's just, that's the wrong way to think about things. We appreciate all of you joining us today. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next Sunday on In Focus. All right, welcome to the In Focus podcast. We're talking to our panel, former communications director for Indiana Senate Democrats, Elise Schrock, two former state lawmakers, Republican Mike Murphy, Democrat Christina Hale, and conservative radio host Abdul Hakeem Shabazz. Thank you all for, uh, for joining us for this podcast. Let's continue the conversation right now, talking about the hate crimes legislation. Uh, do we think it's going to pass? Uh, do you think it's going to happen th this, this, this session? Like I said, I. I I think there will be hate crimes legislation. I don't think it'll be in the way that maybe advocates want it. Uh, I do think there will be a list. There are already places in the statute right now uh, with lists of protected classes for different reasons. All you have to do is just make a reference to those particular parts of the code. There, there's a list. It's included. 
Nobody has to worry. Nobody has to freak out. I think that, that, I think that is ultimately what's going to end up happening. Well, Mike, you were saying that, that maybe part of the problem as far as the timing, as far as getting it done, is the way that the original bill was, was yeah, written? Yeah, it was poorly written. The, the enumeration was, was over, overstepping in some ways and lacking in others. For example, you had law enforcement officers protected, but you didn't have firefighters or other first responders protected. It was just sloppily drafted, quite frankly, and got introduced and got a ways down the road before they start pulling out the bad parts. But it just called into question um, the, the, the accuracy and the correctness of the whole process. So we still have five weeks, which is a long time. And I, I agree with Abdul. Something will come out of this so everybody can declare a victory. The conventions will still come to Indianapolis. The conservatives will be happy, and so will the liberals. But at least, should this be as heavy a lift as it appears to be? I don't think it is because we've heard from, you know, Hoosiers that want this, and we've heard from three quarters of Hoosiers that have asked for this, or have said they're in favor of a hate crimes law um, with a list. Um, I think, you know, Mike brought up a good point about how the bill started, and then we kind of ticked through session and we went into the uh, Senate uh, Public Policy Committee, and law enforcement was taken out. The bill got better. There was kind of a kumbaya that we saw in that committee uh, with so many people in favor of how the bill looked at that point. And then all of a sudden, that just was completely dashed by Senator Aaron Freeman's um, uh, amendment to just mm -hmm. scrap the list after, you know, it had been really been flushed out pretty well in committee, and that's where it started to take its tumble um, that we're seeing now. Well, Christina, given, given everything that's happened so far, how, how hopeful are you that this is going to get done? I lost a little bit of hope this week after we saw what happened with the BMV's decision uh, to pro accommodate third, uh, third gender on uh, driver's licenses. I imagine that really uh, reignited some of the conversations in the Republican caucus. You know, those are big, um, beefy caucuses right. where that can, uh, I've not sat in one, but from what I understand, um, there can be a great deal of, of passion and, and grievance expressed. As the speaker said, it was complicated. Yeah, yeah complicated. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying it. It's really yeah. difficult. Heated. And I think we're conflating several issues together that are really um, incendiary for certain groups of people that um, uh, want to see this scuttled. Does the shadow of RIFRA hang over this entire debate? It's very different. Anybody who compares RIFRA to this is, is, is wrong, frankly, because under RIFRA, remember, this was, RIFRA was Brian Bosma handing uh, his rival, Governor Mike Pence, a, uh, a doo-doo sandwich, let's put it that way, okay? Pence, or Bosma did not want Pence to succeed as a governor. He wants Eric Holcomb to see. They're in a completely different relationship. And leadership relationships matter in this process. I'll take a little bit of a different approach than my distinguished colleague from Perry Township here on that whole dynamic. Uh, because I think the Pence people really dropped the ball on RIFRA. It was never necessary in the first place. It was, it was unnecessary. It was unneeded. And when they did that picture with Friar Tuck and the Flying Nuns, that just ended up all that over. All over. That was just you know, bad form altogether. All I think with respect to, to the bias crimes thing, I do think, I agree with Christina, the, the issue with the, the BMV and the IDs and the whole you know, ex-binary gender thing did complicate matters, but also in fairness to House Republicans, I think they reached a very valuable workable compromise. It just basically adopted the procedure that the two folks went through to get the X on their gender. They say, okay, that's what you got to do to get it solved with birth certificates and other things. So 
it, uh, it can be worked out. It, it can be resolved. I think the, I think the process is there. The, these guys and gals just have to get to it like they do with everything else, like college student, everybody's kids. Everybody wait to the last minute, the last hour, the last day, declare victory, and immediately retreat. Well, I mean, is that the way it's going to go? I mean, it seems like every significant issue waits until the absolute 11th hour before the, the pressure is on. That, that's just the way it works. And it's a long session, so it feels really long. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, the, the, every year we have to write a budget. We know what the final iteration of that budget is going to be a couple hours before signing die half the time so issues that are this big tend to take a while to percolate through the legislative but, process. But long, but long sessions have a dynamic that is a good thing because it allows time for tempers to rise, for names, everybody to be called different names, for editorials to be written and then for tempers to cool down, the editorials to disappear and the, as you said at least the last two days somebody gets in a room and says okay let's figure this out. Christine, you get the last word on this podcast. Well, and sometimes they don't work things out. And I, I think Elise is, is exactly right. You know, we need to professionalize a bit how we do pass law in this state. We have... Um, be absolutely no fun. <laughs> it, it, for it who? Has I, yeah. It has nothing to do with the, the um, media side. I think that we can step up our game, drive toward more evidence-based policy, take a little bit more time to be more thoughtful about some of these solutions. It's always hurry up and rush and push through at the last minute. And I don't think that's what the people want. I think people want us to do our homework, use good information, and make sound decisions. But human, I mean, that's, that's like, you know, a utopia. Human nature doesn't change, okay? And 80% of the legislation that passes in the state of Indiana is based on emotion, not on fact or evidence. We're not doctors, we're politicians. It, it's really? I don't think we should go for the lowest common denominator with policy, yes. and I think our <laughs> constituents expect more. Striving to step up our I mean, game, I think, wow. is always I can, I can say, you know, wow. aim, as high, aim as high as you want, but don't put my gossip column out of business. That's <laughs> all I ask. There you go. All right, that'll wrap it up for uh, this week's edition of the uh, In Focus podcast. I'm Bob Donaldson. Dan's back next week. We'll see you on TV.